0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 3. We are continuing a study through this epistle, which Peter wrote. We come this morning to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Please give your attention to God's Word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, this is your word. We need your spirit to enable us to really listen to it to understand it, and to apply it to our lives. Father, your word is powerful to transform us, but we need your spirit to prepare us to receive it. Guide me as I lead this study through your word, I pray, that I may not in any way lead your people astray, but may Christ be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. And Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that The website, Facebook, has only been with us for less than a decade. Seems like it's been around forever, and it's had such a huge impact on popular culture. If you know anything about the history of Facebook and how it got started, Mark Zuckerberg was a student at Harvard, and he, in a uh, kind of a, uh, a, a devilish moment, in a moment when he just wanted to stir up some trouble, decided to create a website that he called Facemash. And the idea of Facemash was to take pictures, which he stole off of uh, websites from Harvard, stole pictures of young women, coeds from Harvard, and he would put them up on the page, on his webpage, and he would put one or two pictures of two women on the page, and the men, young men, were supposed to vote on which woman was hotter. And so they would vote, and they would throw up another picture, and they would, and it was this, uh, you know, there are actually other sites like that on the web, on the web but, you know, he, he developed this website. It was a huge hit at Harvard and eventually beyond. And, of course, from that point on, as the story goes, he developed what we now know as Facebook. What is kind of fascinating is what the initial reaction of the co-eds at Harvard was to FaceMash, They hated it. They were angry. There was this huge outcry that somebody would take their pictures and put them up next to each other and ask the young men to compare which one was more beautiful. I find that ironic since my impression is that most young women spend an awful lot of time and energy and effort to be perceived as hotter than the other women around them. Why were they so angry about it if it's such a major Major objective in their lives. Well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful. Inherently, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem comes with how much you value that external beauty. That's where the problem comes in. How much do you value your external beauty? In today's passage, the Apostle Peter says to Christian wives... Let your adorning, your decoration, your cosmetics, your outward appearance, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Literally, in the original language, very precious. Actually, says, very costly, very expensive. In other words... In God's mind, the value of the beauty of the heart is far more costly, far more valuable in the sight of God than external beauty. This really fits into this overall theme. I've pointed to it a number of times. I'm hoping that it's getting through. That one of Peter's main concerns in this letter is that God's people display holiness. Holiness. Going back to chapter 1. One of the key verses in chapter 1 is verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy, the Lord says. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the calling. Once the Lord has saved us by His grace, and that's what the beginning of chapter 1 is about, once He has saved us by His grace and brought us to Himself, our calling in life is to be holy. To be like Him. And what is God like? God is like his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So holiness is Christlikeness, and that is the greatest value. When it comes to how we appear before the world, holiness or Christlikeness is to be our main concern. As he says in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it's not that Christians aren't to care about how we look to the, out, to the outside world. We are to be very concerned about how we look to the people on the street, the people in our neighborhoods, the people at school, the people in our workplace. We are to be very concerned about it. But again, keeping the value of our external appearance and the value of our heart, the appearance of our heart, in right in a right comparison, to value what God values, to consider precious what God considers precious. And as we've seen the last few weeks, when we think about what holiness looks like as it's lived out in the world, as it's lived out in our country, as it's lived out in our workplace, as it's lived out in our school, as it's lived out in our homes, one of the key traits that Peter has been pointing us to as we looked at is Submissiveness. Submissiveness, In other words, yielding to those in authority over us. Not grasping for rights, but laying down rights in order that we might submit and be subject to the authorities that God has placed over us. In verse 13 of chapter 2, Peter called upon us to submit to the governing authorities, even to emperors like Nero. In verse 18, he calls upon servants to submit to the masters. And we applied that to people in the workplace, to employees, to their employers. And Peter says to the good as well as to the harsh. And then after he talks about servants submitting to their masters, he points to the example of Christ again. What does submissiveness look like for a servant? He points to the example of Christ, especially if a servant is in a difficult situation situation. He says in verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are to bear our cross in the world. As we said last week, our cross, like Jesus and his unique cross, our cross is whatever suffering, whatever difficulty we have to endure in this life in order to be obedient to God's will. And obedience to God's will is to be submissive to the authorities that are over you. And so in that context, we come to chapter 3, and verse 1, where it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. Now, I understand I'm walking in a minefield here. This is a very controversial teaching in the church. Sadly, many churches have just totally walked away from this teaching. We don't do that here. We embrace it. This is what God's word reveals to us. But we must acknowledge that our world, our culture, not only greatly misunderstands it, but they even abuse what the scriptures teach on this topic. We need to understand that we are in a culture that is hostile to, not to the teaching of Scripture per se, but hostile to a misunderstanding of the teaching of Scripture. And I'm going to this morning, it's going to seem like a cowardly move, but bear with me. I'm going to sidestep for a moment the issue of wives submitting to husbands. I will get back to it, but I'd rather address it next week. Because if you notice verse 7, in verse 7, Peter addresses husbands. And I think one of the reasons that our culture can't understand wives submitting to husbands, one of the reasons they can't understand it is they don't understand what the authority of the husband is all about. They don't understand what biblical authority is. They don't understand servant leadership. And because they don't understand servant leadership, they cannot understand what submission to that leadership looks like. So I don't want to talk about submission to leadership without first talking next week about what servant leadership is and what a husband is called to. Because as I'll say next week... I am firmly convinced that if you can find a husband who is a leader like Christ, who is a servant leader, you will have no problem submitting to his leadership. But we'll get there next week. Today what I'd like to talk about is really, and I'd like to keep the focus where Peter keeps it here, because his focus isn't so much on submission. Submission is the trait he begins with, but then he goes on to talk about a lot of other inner traits, And really what he's talking about, if you look at it in the first six verses, he's talking to Christian women and saying, you need to seek after the kind of beauty that God considers precious. So he's really talking about what women consider important in regard to beauty. Why is holiness or why is Christ-likeness of greater value than external beauty, physical beauty? I think Peter gives three reasons here. The value of holiness is, first of all, that it's an inviting beauty. An inviting in the sense of the gospel. It's an inviting beauty. Secondly, it's an inner beauty. It's a deeper inner beauty. And thirdly, it's an imperishable beauty. Let's look at the first one. Christlikeness or holiness is an inviting beauty. What you pick up on very quickly here is that Peter is writing not particularly... I mean, he's certainly writing to all Christian wives, but he's particularly addressing wives who have unbelieving husbands. And I think not that there were probably... I am not. I don't think that reflects the fact that there were more wives of unbelieving husbands than there were wives of believing husbands. I don't think that that's what he's assuming. I think the reason he addresses wives... With unbelieving husbands is because he has just referred to when he's talking about slaves and masters and citizens and and uh, governors. He's talking about submitting in difficult circumstances, submitting where submission really involves sacrifice and suffering, and that's why he's just referred to how Christ submitted to the authorities in spite of the suffering that led to the cross, and so. For that reason, he's going to say something that's true for all wives, but particularly for wives who have unbelieving husbands. He talks about husbands, the wives who have husbands who do not obey the word. And in the original Greek, the language there really implies a husband who not only is an unbeliever, but is rebellious against God in a a more overt way. Husbands who do do not obey the word. And you have to understand that much more so in in this culture, in the first century Roman society, wives were expected to take on the religion of their husband, no matter what that religion might be. didn't matter what their own heart convictions were. That was part of what they considered submission in that culture, is if you married a pagan husband, then you became a pagan in whatever form that took. And so you can imagine, just as in submission to the governing authorities, submission to, to masters, you can imagine that for a Christian wife to submit could to could mean that her life would be filled with a lot of difficulty and inconvenience and even danger. And so that's really why Peter begins by saying, likewise, or in the same manner, wives should submit to their husbands. Now what's the likewise referred to? Well, that goes all the way back to chapter 2, where it says that that we are to submit as unto the Lord or for the Lord's sake. It's because Christ is Lord that we submit to those authorities that he has established in the world. Government, employers, husbands. It's because Christ is Lord and we are to serve those earthly authorities only in so far as they do not require us to disobey Our ultimate authority, which is Jesus Christ. And so that applies to the wives as well in in their situation. Insofar as their husbands do not require them to disobey their ultimate Lord Christ, then they are to be submissive. But notice to wives in that difficult situation, notice what he says. He says that this Christian wife who has an unbelieving husband can win over that husband if they do it the Lord's way, if they trust the Lord and submit the Lord's way, they can win over their unbelieving husband. And when I read that, my mind immediately went back to the beginning of Proverbs. If you ever read those first wonderful few chapters in the book of Proverbs? As the writer of Proverbs, Solomon probably, as he wrote those words, he lays out basically two siren calls at the beginning of that book. Two women who cry out in the marketplace. And the one woman is known as Wisdom. And she cries out in the marketplace, calling to the people, Come to me, that you might receive blessing and protection and prosperity. Come to me, and I will bless you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. But then there's, as you go on in Proverbs, there's another woman crying out in the marketplace. The woman who is an adulteress. The woman who is dressed like a prostitute the one who seduces and invites the young men in and then leads them to destruction and it just makes me think about it. as a christian wife understand that really you have to ask yourself who do i represent in my concern for beauty in my pursuit of beauty do i represent the voice of wisdom or do i represent the voice of the adulteress which kind of beauty Am I striving after the beauty of wisdom or the beauty of the adulteress? Well, as we think about that, we need to dig a little deeper and talk about what kinds of beauty these are. So the second difference that Peter alludes to is the difference between superficiality and substance. The beauty of the adulteress, the beauty of the world, the beauty, physical beauty, so often can be distorted, into being something that's only superficial and actually covers up a lot of ugliness. Whereas, as Peter says here, true beauty, the beauty of wisdom, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of Christ is an inner beauty, a deep inner beauty. In verse 3, Peter says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Now, this may be obvious, but let me point it out anyway. Peter is not prohibiting the braiding of hair or the putting on of jewelry. He must not be. He can't be. He can't take it in a legalistic way because if you were to say that, if he's prohibiting braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry, then he's also prohibiting the wearing of clothes because that's how those phrases go. Obviously, it's not the use of these things that he's prohibiting. It's the misuse of these things, the abuse of Of braided hair and the abuse of jewelry and the abuse of clothing. And it does help to understand that if we think that women are preoccupied with their outward appearance in our culture, it was worse in Roman culture. Women in Roman society, especially wealthy women, were known for their extravagant hairstyles and their massive jewelry and their expensive clothing. They wore multiple and elaborate necklaces, bracelets, anklets, tiaras, and they spent hours upon hours constructing mounds of hair filled with braids and curls. Have you ever seen like the the, the uh, relief, the drawings or the relief uh, carvings on Roman tombs? So often what you see is a woman with hair piled way up off the, you know, and off the back of her head sitting there looking in a mirror. That's, that's a very common picture of a wealthy woman in Roman society. One historian said, Hairstyling was the leisure pursuit of the cultured, elegant female. Hair was seen, as a much of, was seen as much as an indication of wealth and social status as it was of taste and fashion. What he's talking about here is not adornment. He's not, he's not saying adornment is wrong. What he's addressing here is indulgent adornment. And he calls it a red flag to look at the nature of the heart. Extensive, extensive and excessive attention to outward appearance is a clear sign of both vanity and the fear of man. Man. Why are you getting dressed in the morning? Why are you putting on cosmetics? Why are you fixing your hair? What's your intent? What are you trying to accomplish by doing that? Are you trying to enhance the natural beauty that God has given you? Are you, are you living in the fear of man and living for the approval of man? That was something that uh, took me a long time to figure out, is that when women get dressed to go to a party or an event... Most of the time they're not even getting dressed for men, they're getting dressed for the other women because there are two different purposes, you know. Certainly you want the attention of men, there's that natural sinful desire for the attention of men, but there's this competitive thing that I don't get and I fully don't, I really don't understand. Men don't think that way. I don't ever think about what the other men are going to think about me when I walk in, what I'm, you know, what what shirt I'm wearing or suit coat or whether I'm wearing a tie or not. I don't care what the other men think, but for women I understand it's a whole different mindset. But in either case, it's all about the fear of man. It's about valuing external appearance over internal appearance. Scripture doesn't prohibit the enhancement of our God-given beauty, but it does say that God opposes the proud. Paul gives very similar instructions over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says. He says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire but with that but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You see for Paul and I think for Peter too the goal in terms of our external appearance is modesty modesty and that's one thing that's famously culturally determined you know the scripture does not give us a you know a checklist of 10 things that define what modesty is for anybody because you have to look at the context of your culture and say what does modesty look like in my culture but that's the goal the goal is to yes enhance your god-given beauty but to draw attention to him and not to yourself to exalt christ and not yourself Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. It's hard to read this verse without chuckling, but it says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout. And I think the writer of Proverbs there is wanting us to be both, yes, chuckle a little bit, but to be discomforted by the idea of something of beauty and value and preciousness being married so closely with ugliness. And what Peter is trying to drive us to is to say, if you far more highly value the inner beauty, then any external adornment is only going to be icing on the cake. It's going to be a nice, subtle enhancement, but the focus will be on the inner beauty. Peter mentions, and I'll quickly cover these, five attractive traits, inner traits, traits of the heart, or as he calls it, the hidden person of the heart. That's where he wants the focus of our adornment to be. He mentions respect in verse 2. And again, this is respect for the position of authority, even if the person who's in that position of authority is not acting in a respectful way. Respect for the position of authority. And he later points to Sarah, who called Abraham, her husband, Lord. My wife has never called me Lord. That doesn't mean that she's being disrespectful, or it doesn't mean that she's disobeying what Peter teaches here. But understand that in Sarah's day, that was the respectful title for the authority in her household. Abraham was the God-given authority in her household, and so she used the term of her culture, of her day, to show that respect. And so the issue isn't the word you use, whether you call your husband Lord or Sir or whatever you want to call him. The question is, how are you addressing him? How do you speak about him? And I want to challenge you as Christian wives about how you speak about your husband. Do you speak about him with respect or do you speak about him with ridicule? It becomes, and I think it's a cultural thing, that it becomes acceptable to make fun of our spouse. Husbands, wives, wives, husbands. But this is a special calling to the Christian wife to say, treat your husband with respect even when he is not acting in a respectful way. Because you respect the God-given position of authority that he's in. The second trait that Peter mentions is purity. And the word means to be chaste or morally clean or uncorrupted by the world. And, of course, that doesn't mean imperfection. But that's really the beauty. Again, he's pointing back to holiness, Christlikeness. Your husband, whether even if he's an unbeliever, should see that Christ-likeness in your heart. The third word he uses in verse 4 is gentleness. Literally, it's the word that most often is translated meekness. But meekness is not timidity and meekness is not mousiness. That's the way we tend to hear that word. But meekness is Christ-likeness. The word is used, the word in the Greek is used four times in the New Testament. The first three times are, this is the fourth time here, the first three times are when Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The second time is when Jesus says about himself, Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle or meek in lowly in heart. And the third time is at the triumphal entry where the scripture is quoted, where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble or meek, and mounted upon a donkey. You see, meekness is Christlikeness. And meekness, therefore, is not weakness. Meekness is actually strength and intelligence Under control. Strength and intelligence that is offered submissively to the authority that God has instituted. That's what meekness is. The Proverbs 31 woman that we read about earlier, that was not a weak and timid and mousy person. That's a strong woman in, in Proverbs 31, but a woman who lives in submission to the authorities that God has placed over her life. The fourth characteristic is quietness. That doesn't mean silence. The word in the original Greek means to be at peace, to be undisturbed, to be unstressed. And that's a very attractive quality, especially for wives who are in difficult circumstances. And the last characteristic that Peter mentions is hope. Hope in Christ, hope in the gospel, not hope in this world. In verse 5, it says, For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. Do your husbands see hope in you? It's especially important that unbelieving husbands see hope in you. Because as Peter will go on to say, just flip it, looking down a few verses to verse 14, he says, He um, says, Picking up in verse 14, the end of verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, Peter understands that the bait on the hook of the gospel is hope. That's what's appealing to a world that doesn't have hope. And that's what Christian wives should have such hope in Christ in their heart that especially in the difficult circumstances they give clear testimony to Christ you see that's why Peter speaks of the unbelieving husband being one without a word by the conduct of their wives you know family members are the hardest ones to witness to with words especially unbelieving husbands they're hard to witness to with words because they've heard it all before they shut you out all the baggage of the family relationship comes in there so they won't listen to your words, but they cannot deny the witness of your life, the conduct that Peter refers to. Christ-centered living, dependent living in prayer, living in hope, those are powerful witnesses. And that's what Peter calls upon the wife of a unbelieving husband to focus upon, that that kind of beauty is what will transform its, its redemptive and then thirdly, not only does he want call us to the um, inviting beauty of Christlikeness and the inner beauty of Christlikeness, but the imperishable beauty. Look at verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Purity, gentleness, quietness, and hope don't wash off like makeup. They don't tarnish like silver and they don't wear out like clothes. Literally, the word imperishable means undecaying. And really, that's what outward beauty is, isn't it? It's decaying beauty, no matter how hard you may try. I I sometimes go to the Fox News website and there's a lot of stuff on there that I need to ignore, but there's one thing that I always do click on when I see it is stars without makeup I just get a kick out of that. They catch these poor, you know, big-name star women. They catch them without their makeup out in public, and then they put it on their website for all the world to see. It's kind of cruel, and I know there's probably something dark in me that appeals to, but it is true that what we see is such a facade. It's so fake. It's so temporary that those beautiful women in the movies and the television shows, the magazines... Well, as we found out recently, a lot of them, it's not even what they look like even if you were there in person because they've airbrushed it all and made it look even better. You know, it's so fake. It's decaying. And you see some of these women who used to be beautiful in their 20s and 30s are now in their 60s, and they're trying so hard to hold on. They're desperate to hold on to that decaying beauty. And they have their $100 tans and their... their uh, Botox and their plastic surgery and you really just look at them and you say, give it up. You can't do it. You can't hold on to it. It's decaying beauty. But you know what? And I'm going to say this to young men. If you're not married yet, the best investment you can make in life is in finding a godly Christian woman to be your wife. Because Christ died To make her holy. Christ died to make her beautiful. That's what Ephesians 5. We'll look at Ephesians 5 next week in relation to husbands. But it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do it? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If your bride truly belongs to Christ, then His promise is that she will get more and more beautiful as His sanctifying work in her progresses. What a great investment. That her inner imperishable beauty will only become greater by the grace of Christ. That's what Paul is alluding to in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. This is the beauty that you need to value. The inviting, inner, imperishable beauty of holiness. And your life should reflect the great value that you set on that. That is the fashion of Christ's kingdom that does not change. Peter says, For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And you think of the voice of the adulteress in Proverbs. Another picture from the Old Testament you think of is Jezebel. You know, Jezebel's known for two things, basically. For manipulating and ruling over Ahab, and for painting her face. Those are the two things that she's known for. And so I think Peter would have us ask the question, are you a daughter of Sarah, or are you a daughter of Jezebel? Who sets your fashion standard? Who gives you your sense of value for what beauty is all about? Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 8, while bodily training, and he would put bodily adornment in the same category, is of some value, godliness is of value in every way and holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There are a lot of beautiful women here this morning, and I can say that without my wife getting angry at me because I'm looking at hearts and not faces. And that's what's really valuable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us faith and enabling us to look beyond shallow appearances. To see what is truly valuable, what is truly beautiful. Lord, may we all strive after that holiness, that Christ-likeness that you highly value. And that by your grace, we are coming more and more to value ourselves. Thank you for your work of grace in us. May it continue by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.